Eurydice, a portmanteau of European rare disease, is a non-governmental alliance of organizations representing 860 rare disease patient organizations in 70 countries and the 30 million people affected by rare diseases throughout Europe. It was founded by CEO Yan LeCam in 1997, whose eldest of three daughters is living with cystic fibrosis. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Simone Baselli, who joined Eurotis in April of 2017 as the Director of Public Affairs. Simone, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. It's a very pleasure to meet you, Duane. Thank you very much for having me today. Now, obviously, we've been getting set up discussing American NBA basketball, and you are a uh, former semi-professional player in Italy. Today, the topic of discussion <laughs> is another one. Is yeah, rare yeah. diseases. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So, Eurotis has been involved with orphan drugs and rare conditions from the very earliest discussions of their existence since the orphan drug legislation was passed in 2000. What is an orphan condition and how do you see their treatment being handled differently than a regular condition? Well, first and foremost, we would like to speak about rare diseases, okay. orphans. Are the names that are da- targeted to the medicine specifically, so the regulation on orphan medicinal product. The regulation defined what a rare disease is in uh, Europe, so identifying the prevalence in affecting people fewer than one in 2,000 uh, people. Uh, many of these diseases are of genetic origins, and many children are affected by it. Greater uh, prevalence of onset occurs in childhood for more than 50% of the rare diseases. There are recognized over 6,000 rare diseases affecting approximately 6% of the European population or even the, the global population, leading to approximately 30 million people living with rare diseases uh, in Europe or the population of Belgium and the Netherlands combined. Practically pretty much all of the capital city in uh, Europe combined. There are many diseases that are well known these days after almost... 20 years since the regulation was put in place in Europe. But rare diseases are chronic, progressive, degenerative, debilitating and frequently life-threatening diseases. Why rare diseases are set apart from other diseases that all of them have very few patients and even fewer experts that know what the diseases are. Would you say that the patients then are often the expert of their own disease? In many cases, yes, indeed, because they are in some cases one in a million and even more than that. But even when the prevalence is higher, the geographical patterns are very scattered. So not, not each country cannot have all expertise on all rare diseases. Which means doing clinical research becomes increasingly difficult then as well. In general, it is more difficult that is to say that where we are now in the progresses that we have had in DNA understanding, in understanding in genetics, in the, uh, the potential that digital has in grouping data, we are better. And then scientific progress has advanced very much. Clinical trials in general are difficult to know, but in some established areas now it is entirely a different situation. So what was the situation before the orphan drug regulation was passed. How did drugs, orphan drugs, come to market? Did they come to market? If I remember correctly, there were about eight, eight. Dis- eight therapies for rare diseases that were developed prior to the entry in force of the regulation in Europe. We have to remember that the U.S. have introduced the Orphan Drug Act in 1983, and one of the key reasons that Eurodis came to the fore was to bring to Europe a legislation that would allow a favorable environment for the research and development into these rare conditions. Increasingly, we're seeing more and more 
orphan research, orphan drugs. There's a good argument to say that the science itself, because of genetic indication stratification, is leading us to more and more identification and more and more assets for orphan conditions. Is it inevitable that we will see these with ever-increasing uh, smaller and smaller populations just because the science is leading us there? Not necessarily. We would lo love to do that, um, as um, as science, as you said, is progressing to such a p at such a pace that we can hope to cover many of the rare diseases that are, are uh, uncovered now. I would like to focus that on the fact that we can have much more precise medicine that targets specific indicators, and hopefully, with the better understanding of the disease nature and the disease progression, we can aim at getting better targeted therapies for smaller population. However, we need to be mindful that currently only a handful of diseases have a treatment, and particularly those with higher prevalence or with higher knowledge, and only in certain cases we have very small population, very rare diseases that have been addressed. Do you think the OMP orphan regulation has been a success? Overall, if you think that the primary objective was to create a favorable environment for investment in areas that would otherwise have not served very well, such as rare diseases as defined by the regulation, then yes, it has attracted investment. It has brought over 2,000 orphan in designation and over 160, 170 of the latest count orphan medicinal product approved. That is to say that is a success in terms of increasing the research in this area and giving patients the availability of safe and, in many cases, effective treatment. But the stories not end up there. We know that, for instance, it's the treatment that are now available and we have preliminary data from a survey that we have closed at the end of April amongst our panel of people living with rare diseases through our rare barometer program. We have about 7,000 respondents and we know that it's only about 5% of people with rare diseases that have an authorized product. So 95% 95, 95 are still without a treatment? For many reasons. And even in with this 5%, which covers 1% of the rare diseases, and also here there is another caveat to say is that that 1% of rare diseases represent 5% of the population. So we have targeted diseases that are larger, which is great because that's, that's where the knowledge was. And in fact, you have seen in certain areas an emergency of clusters, which has also led to some competition even in, or in the orphan drug space, in the orphan drug space and in certain disease areas. But we don't have enough coverage. And one of the limits of the regulation is not intrinsic to the regulation. The regulation is intended for a 28, for the European, the whole of the European Union. Sure whereas we have 28 markets. And each market is an individual market with its own Correct. flavors and idiosyncrasies, etc. Indeed. If you had the ability now, what would you recommend from the standpoint of Eurotis as a change or some tweaks you'd like to make? We understand the European Commission is currently under a major incentives review. Mm. From your position at Eurotis, would you like to see happen to the regulation? We would like to see that the principle that regulation establishes that is, that patient with rare diseases deserves an equal effective treatment compared to the general population will be upheld. Right. That should stay 
in the purpose of the legislation. Particularly also, we would like to see that uh, the current provisions, for instance, you probably are aware of many of the debates that are around the excessive return on profits that some of the companies are doing, effectively the provision in the orphan medicinal product regulation, namely Article 8.2, already provide instruments to the legislature to monitor, certainly, their progress in terms of economic activities. But I don't think they have the legs at the moment to be fully implemented. That's one of the cases. In general, many of the principles that have been upheld, and some of my colleagues might point out some of the problems that we see in the regulation are not necessarily due to the regulation, but as I mentioned before, to the fact that there is no unified market. We see that it takes approximately, or at least we have estimated in the past, that it takes approximately six years from marketing authorization to full access for people in the whole of Europe to access one authorized therapy. Uh, this is a paradox that we should really address. What, in your opinion, at Eurotis, is causing this disparity in access? Is it strictly economics? Many of the HTAs feel that the current market for orphans is unsustainable as it is now, let alone with increasing costs and more stratification and more medicines. There's a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. First off, do you think this concern is justified? And then what do you think is, is it that concern that's causing this lack of access? Is it just a government saying, we, we can't do this now? It's not just government that, can, that, they say, that says do, but I think... We said in the, the latest one publicly that Jan said is in February uh, at our symposium. We see systematic failure to the patient. Whether this is a problem of the government saying no to price, to a drug or a treatment, or is because of a strategy that a pharmaceutical company is pushing forward of high return of high price by default, it might be one or the other or both or other issues. The point is that the patient that should be eligible for this treatment are not receiving this treatment. And this we see it in many, in many different uh, situations. We see that in some cases, governments are not, re not fully realizing or fully giving the opportunity to therapists to fully realize their potential with effective treatments or with uh, flexible solution. But also on the other hand, we see in some cases, six, seven, eight digit figures being asked, at least at list price, we know very well that this is not the price that he's going to be paid effectively later on because rebate, clawbacks, etc., etc. But at least that price, we very little explanation of the reason and the rationale why we got to that figure. We don't know why and even payers do not know that. We have publicly stated in our position paper on access in January 2018 that high price by default is not a strategy. It is not also a strategy to deny any type of access to specific therapies even at a high price without at least trying some of the new flexible opportunities that we have such as payment for outcomes with the collection of real world evidence in clinical practice to allow those therapies to fulfill their promises. In some cases it might not happen. If we believe the Tufts University research 51% of all the cost of a medicine is simply the cost of time of doing research. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're looking at 2.6 billion dollars per asset on average 1.3 of that could be gotten rid of by coming to market faster. Mm. 
what is your opinion at Eurotis of trying to accelerate, go from 11 years to five years or four years, and then letting the market try to equalize pricing, more competition in this space? Is that something that we should be looking at as opposed to pricing controls necessarily? Yes and no. And let me, let me explain that. I think we are all for having good, safe, efficacious treatment as early as possible. But we need to have an early conversation and an early dialogue between all players involved, the regulators, the manufacturer, the clinicians, the patients, patients. and the payers to define what is the value early on of this therapy. What is the estimated budget impact? What is the population that is going to be affected? And what type of agreement needs to be done? Now, essentially, you're describing an adaptive pathway process, which was tried to be put in place, which didn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, there, there are, it is an adaptive pathway, and I think that in some cases will, will work, but there needs to be the condition in place to do so. I think now the condition, perhaps the adaptive pathways as it was defined back then, didn't have some of the other elements at the European potentially market. Sure. Uh, you have a central regulators, you have EMA, you have progressive cooperation between HDA bodies, not fully into a European yeah. structure. That's one of my next questions. <laughs> uh, not fully in a European structure, but you are starting to have those elements. Plus, you have the beginning and now we are in the second year of the European reference network which are providing the connected clinical expertise on specific diseases you started to form much more the piece that you're missing is payers whether these are member state authorities competent authorities or however you want to call them get together to discuss all of these means for them and this doesn't need any European legislation it only needs political will as we've seen in some pockets you see the Belgium, the Netherlands, Ireland, and the rest, they are starting to. Yeah, Benelux, Valetta, Benelux, Valetta and all, all of the rest. Yeah. But clearly, you can see that there is a, a great potential to readdress the imbalance that there is now between manufacturers and competent authorities in, in the negotiating part. Now, the European Charter guarantees equal right to access. You've already mm. mentioned that there's a six-year dispersion among all the member countries. You mentioned HTA reference pricing. There was an enormous push over the last 24 months to have a new HTA process, and that seemed to have gone by the wayside and things have not gone well. Why do you think this is so difficult? Is it just structurally the problems of Europe as it stands? What do we need to do? <laughs> There's an easy question for you. So. No, it's not an easy question. But I think if we will go back and really think, what do we want? What we want to achieve with this system? And this is what is in the European treaties. We want to safeguard the public health of our citizens. And that's what it should be at the center of detention. The public health aspect and the patient specifically. Think about a patient with a rare disease that is lacking the knowledge that is takes four years on average to go from understanding what you know something wrong is with me to a full diagnosis on average with eight professionals being involved in that sense you got the european reference network that could help with that if you are looking at medicine you know a across the 28 uh, countries you got the european medicine agency overseeing the regulatory process you started to see that what is missing is the third part well the access that we need to get right. together and that's the part that is difficult because historically every country is very fond of their health system but if we all realize that the challenges like any other challenges that we cannot fully resolve within our state strength is in numbers and it's not only the golden state warriors <laughs> motto 
but it's what rare diseases together we can do. We can really make a difference for individual citizens if we do that. On the specific question on HDA and why it is on the wayside, there are differences and understand and understandably there are differences, but we need to go back and understanding why we're doing this. And then if we put really the patient at the center, I believe we can find a solution. If you look at the Dutch, the Dutch are focused very much now on trying to use their real-world evidence assets internally that they have in the, certainly some of the registries that they have at the national level, etc., to try to validate new therapies. If you look at Italy, when Luca Pani was there at the AIFA, he had put in a validation mechanism where access under evidence, and then he even had some successful clawbacks of a couple drugs that didn't meet the targets. That's all been rolled back now. Italy doesn't necessarily have that reimbursement program that it did. Mm. Access under evidence is probably a good approach, but it seems politically it's challenging. How can your artists help that, I guess? <laughs> Helping with uh, connecting the patient voice and the evidence across countries, certainly from, from, from a rare disease perspective, you can, you can say that putting people together across barriers would give better evidence of how a treatment works, but you don't have the treatment given in all countries at the same time. Given the opportunities that data development, artificial intelligence, well, not to go into artificial intelligence per se, you might in some cases need just a spreadsheet to understand what some, in some cases, the impact on patients is and how many treatments are distributed. You got to think, why do I need this evidence? You need to provide good design and here patient input is necessary to have validated outcomes that are meaningfully relevant for patients. And that's where we can help. Eurodis has been working hard for, since its inception, and particularly since 2009, with our summer school, which now it turns into Open Academy, where we train patient advocates on all matters of regulatory and HDA matters, but also now working on translational research, in many situations, as we said at the very beginning, the patient is the one that knows better about the disease. And this is particularly true in rare conditions. You were a former basketball player and you now are working for your artist. What's your background? How did you end up in this world? How do I end up here? Yes. Uh, How did well, you end up talking to me today about orphan drugs and <laughs> the orphan drug legislation? Three main, three, main, three main reasons. Well, I ended up in Brussels for education mm -hmm. and I ended up staying for love. Love uh, of the city, love of the politics, and the love of my life. Love of the politics, my God. Ah, yeah, yeah, I, was looking for, I was looking who that was. Okay, <laughs> I finally found him. <laughs> no, I, have, I come from a background where my granddad was involved in, very young, in the resistance in, in the Second World War. My dad has been involved politically, locally, and also my granddad, I did myself. And he's really as uh, politics as a service to the community. That is where I come from. Coming here, that's what I did, you know, my stint in the European Parliament. Then I worked in consultancy for 11 years, always in public health, lobbying or slash advocacy, how do you like it? But I end up working a lot with patient groups and grassroots works is always what I like the best in my areas. Then part of my work got me closer to the work of Eurodis and I liked Eurodis and I admired the way that it was set up and admired the way that they worked. When the opportunity came, I took it also for personal reason, in the sense that uh, I have had my personal experience with a rare occurrence. Sure. We see this on the same level as being in the resistance of World War II. I mean, there are huge challenges here to try I, and make this work. Yeah, I know there are huge challenges, but in the spirit, if not in the fact, that there was in the resistance is that things can be done. Sure. And I think we have the elements to make a system sustainable. In many cases, and you mentioned that the payers are 
um, af afraid of the challenges that higher number of rare diseases coming through the market at the same high price would pose. But the fact is that we see that the average sales say that despite being expensive, an average orphan medicinal product in Europe costs roughly between 30 and 40,000 euros per patient per year. But and it's only, it only makes up 4% of the total cost as well. It varies energy. from country to country, and I don't understand why Belgium, for instance, has a higher share of orphan medicinal product compared to other countries. And there is a mix of things that are giving a view of that the orphan expenditure is growing. Some say that oh, the overall growth of pharmaceutical has declined, whilst the overall growth of orphan medicinal products expenditure has grown. So it represents a higher share right. of what it is now, which could be a valid element, but at the same time, it is a good element. We are we are seeing more therapies that are more effective for patients coming in. What I don't see, though, is that the full cycle of research and development, new therapy is researched, developed, and then it falls into the generic, is not happening right. in rare diseases specifically, despite a number of therapies going off the market exclusivity. Mm -hmm. So it basically, you, you see there's evergreening strategies that sometime are not allowing the generics to come on. In some cases, yes. I don't say intrinsically that's the overall problem. I think there is not enough being done. And I think there again, pooling resources amongst countries could lead to better generation of, for instance, biosimilars for rare diseases. We are seeing it coming in for much larger populations, such as diabetes sufferers and insulin, and you start having biosimilars sure. coming in, which represent an option. Isn't part of the problem a question of market dynamics? In the U.S., the orphan drug indication never expires, whereas in Europe it expires technically after, well, 20 years, mm. assuming I'm not going to touch into the... <laughs> I'm not going to go into the IP yeah, discussion. SBCs. Yes, I'm not going to go there, but there's lockout dynamics due to the fact that you're not dealing with the U.S. market, which is held back often because the orphan drug regulation never expires. The misalignment, if you wish, is that in the U.S. you access a full market. Yeah. That's 250 million people or yeah. whatever the, the population is in general, although you also have different payers. you got your Medicare and the different other payers as well. So you do have to, or a company does have their, their own strategy with several payers. And so is the case in Europe where you have though 28 different countries. And I don't think that there is any individual countries, perhaps the most populated one, that could fully address the challenges that we see. IRDIRC, the International Consortium of Rare Disease Research, wants to have a thousand new therapies for rare diseases by 2027. And we wish that this is going to be even more but we need to better coordinate all our efforts in assessing what the budgetary impact could be, what population that those therapies can address, and really go into the granularity of what the rare disease situation is. It's not just about high prices. These are one, if an important component of the high prices, but we rarely talk about budget impact. Sure. We rarely talk about the real prevalence. And there are an, a number of situations where we can do better in terms of sustainability. Tell me, how much would you think that spending four years trying to get a proper diagnosis would cost? Getting into eight different professionals, that is also something that you should take into account. Or look at what happens with someone with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The sunk cost is not often accounted because a caregiver is often a parent who's in their 30s and 40s who then yep. has to take care of somebody and yep. then you lose that. So there's a net sunk cost to society of the caregiver have not being in the workforce. There are all sorts of hidden costs tell, which we're not accounting. I tell you, we did a research in 2017 called Juggling Care and Daily Life, the Balance Act of the Rare Disease Community as part of the Innovcare project funded by the European Union. 
In in the interviews of three, over 3,000 people across Europe, we found out that 7 in 10 people with rare diseases, patients and their parents, reduced or stopped professional Working. activity due to their family members' rare disease. What does it mean? Extended it to the 30 million people. It's most of the case, women that take care of the children. So there is a, a great economic impact, a social and economic impact. Three times more people living with rare diseases suffer from mental health issues. Monday, the 17th of June, 2019, the European Commission is holding its Orphan Drug Task Force Conference yeah. in Brussels. If you had the ability to make one recommendation to them, Simone, what would you like to say to them? It's a very good question. <laughs> if, I were, if I were able to boil it down to one single request. You can do two or three. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, it emerged also in this discussion. Pull every member states together and every actor together to improve the research and development stream because here we're talking about development of orphan medicinal product, legislative environment that needs to be together. Look at the whole spectrum where we can make things better to improve the quality of the treatment that we're doing but also speeding up the research. Nothing can be taken in isolation but the regulation is only part of the whole ecosystem. We need to look at that together so we need to look at it from an holistic perspective. Simone, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dwayne.